All right. So today we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. But I'm going to read, starting in verse 3, uh, the whole section. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him also. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to, that, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us now, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I read the whole context just to sort of, just to keep it into context. And in the Greek, this is actually one really long sentence. It's just like a super long run-on sentence. It's super hard to... um, to, to catch all of the bits and pieces. That's why we've taken about three weeks uh, to, to navigate these little paragraphs. But, but in the original writing of this, it was just sort of like one sort of long uh, opening prayer it's, it, or praise. It's really this, this section of adoration uh, to, to God. Just note sort of in verse 3, it starts out with, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it starts out with this section of praise. We go down to verse 6. We see to the praise of the glory of his grace. Down in verse, uh, at the end of verse 12, we see to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, we see to the praise of his glory. And so this is really Paul sort of writing this worship. This, this, it's not a song, but it's almost a section of just worship to his creator uh, giving thanks for all the things uh, that that he is he has done, and r- really, uh, Paul's foundation and his knowledge, his understanding, his relationship with God, the depth uh, of relationship that he has um, through the suffering that he's gone through, through his intellect of studying and knowing the scriptures at this just sort of this amazing depth. It's how he, when he prays just sort of like leaves us in the dust, or at least he leaves me in the dust. Like this is, there's, there's so much here in his understanding of who God is 
and what God has done. And so uh, in this last section of this opening section, we see that, that Paul is going to continue his praise and his adoration of God. Um, and we begin this with uh, verse 11 or really the end of verse 10, depending on how your Bible sort of sectioned it out. But it starts out with, uh, in him, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And so uh, just sort of looking at these two sections, I want to point out in verse 11, you see that it starts with in him. In verse 13, you see that it starts with in him. And that each of these two sections ends with the phrase, uh, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So it's, we, we see sort of the, like the rhythm or the flow of Paul's thought. And these two words, super critical, super unique to, to, to the apostle Paul, when we read in him, Paul is the only Bible writer that uses this terminology. He uses it something like 169 times. I did not count them. I read it in a commentary. Uh, prior to Paul, nobody referred to this sort of this idea of, of being in him. Uh, somehow we've adopted the terminology that we're Christians, but the, that term, that phraseology isn't really used that frequently in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, we see this phraseology that in him, this idea that we're actually in Christ, we're a part of him. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, when I was in seminary, I remember the class that I took, this, uh, for those of you that have been around for a, a number of years, early in my time here, one of my professors uh, came and he shared, Dr. George Hare. Uh, he's since gone to be with the Lord, and I remember this class, his, you know, he was a very like hunched over guy, and he had the old like, I, just that motion of the chalk, you know, with that little like, you know, like how they had chalk, but there was like a little silver can t like canister, and he'd be like, whap, and he'd just start writing, you know, and, and I remember this one class, he took it, he drew two circles on the chalkboard, I'm like, what, are, what, are, what, what, I didn't say anything, I'm just like, what's he doing, like this old guy, like, and then he drew an arrow from like, from one circle over to the other circle, and then he wrote 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13. And it says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And in the first circle, he wrote Adam. And in the second circle, he wrote Christ. And it's just been this, he's like, in your moment of conversion, when you've believed in Christ, you were in Adam, in sin, in death, in separation from God. And in that moment of belief, the Spirit of God transferred you into the body of Christ. And, and this is the thinking that Paul says as he's adoring God. And he says this in today's section, I think it's something like, not today's section, but this first introductory section, he refers to being in Christ something like nine times. And so when he says, in him, there's something different. There's something unique here in the context of praising and adoring God. Uh, he would also write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. 
Behold, the new things have come. So he's saying, in Christ, you're this new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. You're, you're renewed. You're transformed. You're not the individual that you were before coming to know Christ. He continues, and he says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I'm going to point out something that I'm not, sh- I'm not convinced it's a super big deal, but if you're going to read commentaries or if you're going to do some homework or maybe in the footnotes, at, at this point, between verses 11 and 14, there's some discussion, and, and there's slight, uh, I don't even call it disagreement, it's more like slight some would emphasize it one way and others emphasize it the other way. You'll see these terminology. You'll see words, we. So in verses 11 and 12, you see this idea of we also, we also. And then in verses 13 and 14, you see you also. So there seems to be some distinction between the we and the you, um, everybody agrees that the first 10 verses, it's like everybody who believes. There's, it's we, 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 it's all of us. Um, we're all together. If you're in Christ, there's no distinction, no anything. We come to verse 11, everybody says there seems to be some distinction. And the question is, what is this distinction? So, so one camp just thinks that this distinction that he's talking about is that Paul and that, those that he's representing in the writing, that that's the we and the you are the people that he's writing to. I, I don't. I don't know that I that I'm in that camp. I tend to be more influenced by the other camp, that 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 sees this as a distinction between Paul, who is a Jewish man representing a Jewish God, representing a, a Jewish Messiah, who has gone to Ephesus, this very Gentile part of the world, speaking to this church in Ephesus that became sort of. Um, a, a university town for the gospel. This was his headquarters for something like three years. And there Paul trained and ministered these people who were distinct uh, from, from the Jewish faith and foundation, and they became Christians. And so the second camp thinks that this is sort of talking about two, two camps. And, I, and I, I sort of hold this position very lightly, kind of with the end point of like, well, I don't know that it really matters by the time we get to the end. But I think in this first section, what he's saying that we also have obtained this inheritance, it, it seems to be for me that he's referring, as he's adoring God, that he's referring to his, his Jewish roots and the Jewish people, sort of this idea that God has chosen the Jewish people to be sort of um, the ambassadors for the gospel, God's representation on earth not because of anything that they've done. We'll see that their relationship with God comes through faith alone. If you want to make that case, you can. If you want to say, no, no, it's just the Paul's the writer. I'm fine with either one. Um, I, I just don't think it really matters because when we come to the end of verse 14, we'll see that when he refers to the inheritance, he then goes to the phrase, our inheritance. So there's the verses 11 through 12 and then 13, 14, however you want to see those. Think, well, why did you just tell us all this? I, it kind of matters. I, you have to grapple with this stuff. Um, but so, like, this whole idea of an inheritance. Like, what is he, like, what is he referring to? And, and it's very difficult to get, like, a clear answer about, like, what is this inheritance that he's speaking of? One man, Strassner, 
says this, but what is that inheritance? Great question. Does Paul have in mind that the list that we've been piecing together over the last few paragraphs, in other words, our sanctification, adoption, redemption, and forgiveness are inheritance? Or is Paul thinking in this verse about our inheritance in heaven? Perhaps both. So there seems to be something that he's receiving that certainly God has given them, as John preached about early on, that we've received in Christ every spiritual blessing, not 80% of them, not 90%, not 60%, that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Certainly, that, this, this conveys some inheritance, but there's also this idea of future inheritance that something beyond this life, when we stand with Christ face to face and we're no longer in this body, that there's something more. That, that, that I think that in the midst of this, the idea is that we who were far away from God have been adopted into the family of God and that we actually have like true benefits and rights and full um, privileges as an heir. This, this, like, this is certainly this week, if you guys know me, like I just kind of like... Like, who I am is who I am, and you guys kind of get it, good, bad, ugly, whatever. But this is like, who, um, you know, my dad died three weeks ago. My, my family is a super, like, different. Uh, you know, like, we, uh, we're not necessarily clean cut. I need, like, a flow chart to explain the whole how everything is going down in my family. Um, there's... <laughs> Seven kids, all the same mom. We have three different dads in there. I'm number six of seven. And then my dad is responsible for the last two. And then outside of that seven, what I didn't really know about until I was an adult is that my dad, from uh, his first marriage, they had adopted two sons who I never really knew. One got disinherited. One uh, is in the inheritance. And it's like, I'm the trustee trying to like navigate all this thing. And I'm like going, okay, yeah, I'm going to use the attorney because I don't know how I'm going to like, but it's like, I'm seeing like, if you're an adopted son, you're an adopted son. And there's full right, like this is, the law sees no distinction between an adopted son and a biological son. And in this context, this is beautiful because we who are not Jewish we're not biological children. We've been adopted into this family. And here there's this inheritance. And so while I don't know what the inheritance is, the reality is I don't really care. What, what seems most amazing in this is, is that we who are like pagan, like, the, like you know, John's talked about his Jewish roots, but other than John, I don't really know of anybody else in this room who's like really Jewish. And John's like barely Jewish. Like, I don't know if he, I mean, he might have the roots. He's talking over there. Like, but it's like we have full access. We're not secondary citizens or second class citizens. We're not bruised fruit. Like, that we have been grafted into the family of God as heirs. This is significant. He goes on to say, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. And when we see this word predestined, we all get wrapped around the axle. I thought John did an excellent job. I, I keep thinking, I never had read that quote of Spurgeon by, by trying to reconcile free, or, or choice and predestination or election. And Spurgeon, who was a super witty guy that says, well, I tend not to reconcile friends. You know, like if they get along, there's nothing 
to reconcile. But, but we look at this word predestined, and I think that we sort of, if we think through it, where we tend to have some tension is we sort of understand this as sort of like being predetermined, like that God set everything in motion and everything's just happening, and so whatever is is going to be, and, and that's not necessarily what the Bible puts forth in my understanding of this, um, but it's one of these things that we can kind of get heartburn over. A few years ago, when I stumbled across Acts 17, verses 24 through 28, this is one of those passages that has helped me to sort of, uh, at least in my own mind, also, as John put it, the, the, the preschooler who's having a hard time with calculus that doesn't make calculus wrong, it means that the, 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 the preschooler doesn't have the capacity in his brain to understand calculus. So I very much am that preschooler in understanding God's plan and everything that's happening. I'm okay with that. But in Acts chapter 17, as Paul goes into Mars Hill, this, hill, this, this mountain where all of the philosophers uh, you know, swung their swords and argued about theology, and there were all of the gods that they had, and he sees that the, uh, there's this one little stone dedicated to the unknown God. And so Paul goes on to this hillside with all of the, the theologians, and he says, hey, guys, I want to talk to you about that little guy in the corner, the unknown God. And so he begins to reason. And as you go through Acts chapter 17, you'll come to verse 24, and he says, the God who made the world and all the things in it since he is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is the key part. Having determined their appointed times, and the boundaries of their habitation. So this word, uh, predestined, it takes from a couple words, like takes the word horizon and a boundary. And, and so within this understanding, he says, from one man, he's created all of humanity, and every single person who has ever come into existence, according to God, you have come in an appointed time. You were born in whatever year that you were born in. You're going to have so much time in your life during this season of your life. You're going to be born in a specific location, and you're going to either ha- you're going to have boundaries re- regardless. I don't care who you're. If you're the president of the United States who has the ability to do a whole bunch of stuff, you still have limitations in what you can do. And if you're born in a super poor family in a third world country, and your your limitations might be a whole lot smaller, but every person has specifically placed each person in their place in human history, in their location. So that means that I was born in 1974 in Carmel, California to a super dysfunctional family with all sorts of stuff, an abusive mom. All of this stuff wasn't just by happenstance. I might have been a super accident by my parents, but I wasn't an accident by God. Like this, this was God's plan. And the question is, why, God, would you have given me this life that I have 
with these difficulties, these trials, these whatever, or the blessings, however you view your life, he says it in verse 27, the purpose, so that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him, grace loves it when I use this word. It's like, why do you always say grope when you talk about this? I'm like, well, it's the word that's used there. Like, I just read it. I didn't, it, and it's this word for how a blind person sees with their hands, that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So I don't think that predestined means predetermined. We're going we're gonna to get into verse 13. We're going to see that we actually have some responsibility in this matter, that we have a decision to make, that we have a response to make, that we have, we have to do something with what God has done. But what I do think that this passage means and this idea of predestination it means that the cards are certainly stacked against you. What this passage says is that you've been placed with your lot in life in the location, the time, wherever it is that you happen to exist with the boundaries that you have, however big or however small, is that this is the sweet spot for you to find God. God is aggressively pursuing you. And if a person finds himself in hell, it's not because God hasn't reached out to them aggressively. It's because that person has shut down God and rejected his offer. But God is pursuing and chasing. And so I think, well, why was I born when I was born? Why did I, was I born into this family? Why was I born into this, this life with this mother who was this way? And the only thing I've come to conclude is that I'm pretty hard-headed and that this is what God needed to put me into so that I might reach for him so that my life before him would be uh, in a posture of worship and adoration. If he'd given me a simple life without any sort of pain and suffering, I'm not sure that I would be worshiping him. He goes on to say, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, uh, the main thing that I think here is if you hold to the category that he's kind of referencing the Jewish people, um, He says, the first to hope in Christ. And I think that the idea is that Jew, Gentile, from Genesis to Revelation, the way that humanity has interacted with God is through faith. This is how we get right with God. It's never been by works. None of us are deserving. And he says that we who were the first to hope in Christ, if you take this from the the Jewish perspective, the Messiah came to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people rejected the Messiah. But, but in large part, the Jewish people are the ones who received the Messiah in large part, experienced persecution in Jerusalem, then it went out to Israel, and then it continued to go out to the outermost part of the world. And it, it leaped from the, a Jewish thing to a Jewish and Gentile thing. But it was always moving through faith and for the purpose. It would be to the praise of his glory that this is happening for God's glory, not man's glory. Now he transitions over to verse 13, moving along. In him, again, we see this in him, in Christ, moving from Adam over into in Christ through faith by the Spirit of God. You also, this distinction, now I think we're all kind of clear, okay, like you also, this, regardless of your view, we all fit into this 
category. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we're kind of getting into like the sort of the, where the rubber meets the road. We have this lofty prayer, adoration, and we have to remember that this section is Paul's praise to the Father for how good he has been, the things that he has accomplished, predestination or election is not mentioned there sort of as a, as a sparring tool. This is a man which we haven't set up to this point. Ephesians is one of the prison epistles, which means that at the time of writing, Paul was in custody by the Romans for his proclamation of the, the gospel. He was suffering. He finds himself in a prison cell, and he's penning this letter to us by the Spirit. So his life isn't necessarily by human standards going perfectly. He's in his prison cell. He's thinking about what God has done. He's writing this letter, which is, to me, is one of the more significant letters in the Bible. Um, and he just starts out with this praise, like, listen, God has predetermined, not predetermined, but predestined us. He's called us. He's elected us. He's redeemed us by the blood of Christ. This is beautiful, encouraging, and hopeful uh, language. But then he says, but you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So he says, at some point, you've, you've moved along in your life, and somebody has come to you, and they've shared the gospel with you. Uh, the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul says in verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which you also received and which you also stand by, which you are also saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here's the, the definition of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That from Genesis chapter 3, this promise was given that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would suffer and bear the wrath of God for our sins. This wasn't something that just came along and they added to it afterwards. This is from the very beginning. This promise was given, this prophecy was given concerning the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this is the message of truth that Paul references here. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so the question is like, what's the process? Well, the first thing is hearing the good news. And so Paul says, you all heard the good news. You heard this proclamation that God loves you, that you're a sinner, and that the Messiah came, lived the perfect life. He went to the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due you. Just hearing the gospel doesn't make it effective. This is one of the most, I think, one of the most dangerous things about children who are raised in the church is that they hear this message all the time, over and over and over again. And it's like, it's like they get their vaccine to the gospel. It's like they're so familiar with the story that it's, it's something that they know factually, but it's not something that they know transformationally. And, it, and it, it, as a pastor raising a little kid, it, it really does concern me 
because it's like my kids were like, I'd forget exactly, but Anna could tell you, like, kid number one was born on a Monday, was in church on Sunday, and then has basically been there for their whole life. You know, it's like, this is stuff they just know. And that's not what it's saying. Like, there's the idea of, like, it's super important for us to understand how dreadfully sinful we are. And you don't have to have, you know, like, this is one thing being, like, kind of brought up in Calvary Chapel circles. It's like, you feel like you have to have the rock star testimony, and that's absolutely not the Bible's plan. Like, certainly that is, is the case for some. But my wife, who is also a pastor's kid and grew up in the church, she's like, well, the thing is, is like, you got saved out of the, for me, I got saved out of the, doing all the stuff I was doing. She's like, I got saved from that stuff. Like, apart from Christ, that's who I, like, I would be doing the same sort of stuff, maybe differently, obviously, than you, but. So we need to understand who we are in our core. In our core, as we get to, through Ephesians, there's going to be a line that I find super offensive in a funny sort of way, because it, it, there's a line that, that Paul writes he doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. And that we, apart from Christ, are darkness. And we need to hear the bad news. We need to understand the bad news. Who we are, apart from Christ, is not good. And so he says, after hearing the gospel of your salvation, he says, having also believed. So in the midst of this chapter, those that want certainty over truth and, and, and our preschool brains trying to understand calculus, it's hard for us to understand election, predestination with choice. Both are true. Both seem like they're in conflict with one another. And so in order to resolve this, we either pick one side or the other. That, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in election and predestination. Well, the problem is it's in the Bible. Like, it's there. You got to deal with that. Well, no, 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 I don't believe in this free choice. Like, it's impossible for a man to choose. Well you, well, you got a problem because the Bible says that too. Like, all through the Bible, it's like, choose God today, follow God. The decisions that you make, how you live your life, like, there's implications that are eternal implications. So somehow in the midst of these, they're both true. And I'm okay with the tension of, like, uh, when I get to the end of my life and I stand before God, all of my little questions I have, I'm probably not going to care about in that moment. Um, <laughs> I'm probably just going to be worshiping my creator and grateful that I made it there. And, uh, <laughs> um, but what I see here is that your relationship with God, this entering in through adoption, it, it comes when you believe, when you place your trust, your faith, when you actually believe. Um, one of the illustrations I tell all the time, it goes back to the parachute. Like, there are, there are people who can tell you all about skydiving, all about the statistics. In my mind, I can hear, like, I almost can hear, like, an like a eight-year-old homeschool kid giving me a briefing on parachuting, like, with absolute, like, dogmatism, like, about all the facts, all the details, and they're, they're totally correct about these things. It's like, well, Johnny, have you ever skydived before? No, but I know everything about it, and you can't tell me. Like, it's like, okay. But it's a whole nother thing when you put on a parachute for the first time and you got to jump out of a plane. I can tell you about all the facts. I can tell you all the details. I hate skydiving. I've jumped out of a plane hundreds of times. Like, 
it's not a good thing when you've like taken off in a plane more times than you've landed in a plane. Like you, like you're supposed to have the same amount of takeoffs and landings, in my opinion. Um, and then they, you know they sent me to the army, and then it's like, oh, I go to the army, and I'm going through their skydiving course. You spend a week, and and uh, it's not we called it uh, Vietnam, Fayetteville. Um, you learn how to skydive. They have the wind tunnels. They have all the stuff. Then they ship you out to Yuma, Arizona. You get there on a Sunday. You kind of have your orientation. It's like, yeah, tomorrow you guys are jumping. So you've learned while you were in over there, you guys were paying attention to how to pack a parachute, right? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, now what am I going to jump with tomorrow? They're like, well, you got to pack it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me the first time I jump out of a plane, I also have to pack it? That doesn't seem right. And so I go through. I have my iron. Everything's perfect. And it's like that first jump with the parachute that I packed, I am so cinched down. I could barely stand up because I didn't want to slip out like an opening. <laughs> and, and so it's a totally different thing to say that skydiving is totally safe and, and it will save your life from the fall. It's another thing than to pick up a parachute and then to walk out of the back of the plane at 13,000 feet. And, and the belief here that we're talking about, this isn't just knowing the facts about Christianity. This isn't just about to rattle stuff off. Like, I went to church. I listened to this preacher. I read out this translation. I went to Awanas, and I can quote you all these verses. I did all this stuff. That is not faith. Th- those things might produce, be produced out of faith, but this is the idea that I'm a wretched sinner. I don't deserve anything but eternal damnation for my sin and in the face of an eternal God. And this eternal God has revealed himself to us, has given us his word, and he said that my wrath has been satisfied through my son who went to the cross and my wrath was poured out upon him. He has died for you. He has provided a way for you to make peace with me. The only thing that is keeping you from this is responding in faith, believing, trusting that way he did. And this isn't just like adding another, you know, a little, I think rabbit foots have gone out of style, but I remember as a kid, you'd have these little lucky rabbit foots. Like, this isn't just like a trinket. This is like, no, Jesus, you gave your all. You deserve everything from me because I am a dead man walking and you have redeemed me. You have bought me back. You have transformed me. You've moved me from Adam into Christ. All I have, all I am is yours because nothing else matters. Everything else in this life is temporary. And this is a wonderful place to be when you are absolutely broken before God in that moment recognizing that you are just in in total desperation needing a savior. Like, I I believe my moment was somewhere early in those days of 1996, like grappling with my sin and sort of understanding my my need. And it wasn't pleasant or fun to to recognize how helpless you are, how, how horrific your sin is before a holy God. It's not a pleasant experience. But then to come to understand that, no, Jesus loves me and he died for me, and this is real. This isn't just some game. This isn't just something that's to make me feel better in the moment, that this is truly my Savior who's died for me, 
and I truly in him am redeemed and forgiven and cleansed, that Jesus no longer sees my sin, he sees his righteousness in me. It's amazing. He says, you were sealed in him. There's that phrase again, in him, with the Holy Spirit of the promise. It's again, another reason to praise God that we were sealed. Uh, this speaks of permanence. This speaks of uh, security. This speaks of our assurance before God. Verse 14 says, who is a first installment of our inheritance. So it's like a little down payment that God gives us, that we have a spirit of, the Spirit of God within us who sealed us, who's made us secure. All of us, both sections, however you want to take those previous two sections, everybody who is in Christ is secured by the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. It is the first installment. This is as the estate is settling and we're getting our inheritance, the very first part that you get up front is the Spirit of God within you, which is like, we come back to my preschool brain. I don't know that we can fully understand the significance of this in regard to the redemption of God's own possession. This is idea, this is to, to buy back somebody that was in slavery. Somebody, something that was yours, that was lost, that you've bought back, that's like redemption. Like we do it all the time in California, whether you know it or not. Like when you buy your water, I'm not going to do it. I'm like too close to needing glasses. I'm faking it for most part up here these days. I'm like right on the edge of like one day the glasses are going to come out. But like when you buy your bottle of water for 50 cents, you're paying five cents that you're just loaning to them until you return the bottle to get your money, to get your redemption value of that five cents. We were gods from the beginning and we were stolen through sin. And through the blood of the cross, through Jesus' work on the cross, our faith were bought back. And we become God's own possession. This, this, these last few weeks, like, like the whole idea of the things that I'm talking about from the Bible is like, does this really matter? Like, is this really true? On the 20th of this month, it'll mark my family's 16th year of being at this church. I am super thankful that God has allowed me to, like, to live and to serve somewhere over a, like, a, a long stretch of like history. Because when I look out and I see all of you, there's a lot of you that are sitting in people's seats who you're sitting in their seat, but God's taking them home. And I recognize that I'm talking to people today who a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you're not going to be here. Not because you got mad at me and you left the church, like, but because God is taking you home. And I recognize that I'm going to give an account before God. Hebrews makes it clear that I'm going to give an account for your souls. It doesn't seem fair to me. But I also think that there's a great responsibility for those who have been called to preach and proclaim the word of God that our souls are on the line. And so what says here in this text matters. And what this text says, we're told throughout the scriptures that apart from Christ, you stand condemned. That hell is real. Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. But <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but here we're told, 
that there's hope, there's relationship, there's restoration is made possible through the blood of Christ to the praise of his glory. So like, what do we do with this section? Like, what do we do? Like with these first 14 verses, I think the first thing that we have to do whenever we look at the very beginning of Ephesians, the first three chapters are like super like in the clouds, theologically wonderful things. And we're all going to grapple with, well, this just isn't really practical. This is really this. Well, then we're going to turn, we're going to get to chapter 4, verse 1, and then you're going to say, this is getting too personal. This is like really meddling with my life. Like, can we go back to the, like it's laying the foundation for like these theological truths, there's implications in our lives. But I think as we look at these big things, we have to remember this first section is a praise to God. This is Paul adoring God for these things. He is giving thanks that it's, we're sealed by the, the Spirit our relationship to God isn't dependent on like our measuring up because we can't measure up. Our measuring up comes through Christ's measurement that he measures up and that his righteousness has been imputed to our account. This isn't about your life's going well. This isn't about the prosperity gospel. The guy who is writing this finds himself in prison not knowing whether he's going to die or live for walking with Christ. I think there's a good lesson for us to remember that if you want to find true joy and peace, if you're looking around the world and you're looking at individuals, you're looking at the news, and you're all upset by what you see, I think it's good to go to the theological chiropractor like Paul and get put back into perspective by get your eyes off of this world, get your eyes off of yourself, get your eyes off of others, and get your eyes on God. And as we give thanks to him, as we adore him for what he has done, it just sort of puts everything in perspective. He has done infinitely more for all of us than we could ever possibly imagine. If you don't know him, like I pray that you would come to the place where you could believe, that you could trust that the claims of the Bible are true. And for those of us who know him, our lives should be marked by worship. Worship. Charles Swindoll, I'll end with this. From this section, he lists the top 10 reasons to give God praise. He blessed us immensely. He chose us unconditionally. He adopted us adoringly. He redeemed us graciously. He forgave us completely. He showed, us gra- he showed grace to us lavishly. He revealed the mystery wisely. He granted us an inheritance eternally. He sealed us permanently. And he guaranteed our salvation personally. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Father, we thank you that we have been adopted into your family through faith. We thank you that our relationship with you isn't based upon a system of works, our doing or not doing certain things. We thank you that our relationship with you is based upon the work of Christ. We thank you that in him we can stand secure we can stand with assurance, we can enter in to this relationship. 
through his blood. And Father, we pray that as we look around at this world, as we see just the damage and destruction that comes through sin, just living in a fallen world, it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you and to place them on ourselves, to place them on the situations around us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us just to lock onto you, for in you is our only hope. We thank you, God, for being so kind to us. We thank you for your great patience towards us. We thank you for your love for us. We ask you, God, that you would help us to live our lives in a way that's worthy and that our lives would ultimately bring glory to you. We recognize that we will always fall short. And so we just, we just give you thanks, God. We thank you for your, your loving kindness towards us. And I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.